From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Priesthood has to do with not just the things that you do in the church, but the ways in which all of us are a part of the continuous creation and work of God in the world. This is why social justice and education are so important, because the opportunities that we have to develop that to its full extent is coming to the fullness of who you are, being able to be fruitful in life, and that brings fulfillment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes. She was until very recently the dean of Esperanza College of Eastern University. She now leads a major grant project for the Association for Hispanic Theological Education, a leading organization for Latinx theological education. She's the co-author of A Many-Colored Kingdom, Multicultural Dynamics for Spiritual Formation, and Latina Evangelicas, a theological survey from the margins and she's the author of Listen to the Children, Conversations with Immigrant Families and Hispanic Bible Institutes, A Community of Theological Construction. Today we're talking about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. Elizabeth Conde Frazier, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so very much. I'm very happy to be here and have this conversation. Well, I'd like to begin as a way of orienting our listeners to some of the terminology that we will be using. You actually do this early on in a footnote in your book, Atando Cabos, and I'd I'd like to ask you to walk through some of the thought process with us and with my listeners today. When we are thinking about churches and religious uh, practices that generate from the variety of Spanish-speaking countries. There are a multitude of terms that we might use. There's an older term, Hispanic. Some of my listeners may have heard Latino, Latina. Some ha- some may have heard Latinx. I'm wondering which ones you prefer, and are there technical ways in which we should be thinking about these various terms in relation to one another? Sure. So Hispanic is mainly a term that is used by the government on census, any kinds of forms that pertain to that. That's how they refer to us. It was a term that was conflictive because Hispanic means that you come from Spain, Hispanos, Hispanoamerica. And we don't come from Spain. We come from Latin America and from the Caribbean. So it was not a term that was used by the community itself for its own definition. Now, of course, I have to clarify that those who are first generation, in other words, they're coming here to this country, especially after the age of 18, they don't see themselves as Latino, Latina, Latinx or anything. They see themselves as being Salvadorian, Mexican, Puerto Rican, etc., because that's where they come from. That's where their identity was formed. So these are all artificial terms, right? Terms that we have to figure out how we want to identify ourselves in a society that is different than our own and which sort of fits with that society and with us about who we are. So that's why there are so many different terms that are being used. So Latino Latina is a term that speaks about our being from Latin America, the O and the A, because that's those are the gender pieces. And as gender became more expanded, then we use Latinx. So that's how it's gone. Now, Latinx is still a term that is very new. And even scholars in Latinx studies uh, don't always feel comfortable with it. So it's still a conflictive piece. So I may use the Latino, Latina or Latinx interchangeably. The church speaks about itself as being uh, Latino, Latina, simply because 
They've not been a part of the more academic conversations, one might say, which are taking place more in an English-speaking context. But the second and third generation Latinos here in the United States may refer to themselves as Latinx. That is very helpful. And part of what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that it's vitally important for anyone who wants to enter into this kind of conversation to listen to the way that the conversation partners are choosing to define themselves. Now, those are my words, not yours, but am I understanding the spirit in which you're deploying these various terms? I think that's a good way to say it, Dave. Thank you. Well, thank you. And so as part of this, I think it's important for my listeners to also understand an added dimension of what you just said. We're not necessarily dealing with one kind of community when we're talking about the Latino, Latina church or the Latin X experience in America. We're dealing with an intersection of identities that are national and are cultural, but they're also generational. And I'd love to hear more about what you began to talk about just a moment ago when you said first generations of persons coming to America into a new cultural context will not necessarily feel comfortable with terms like Latina, Latino, but instead they'll say, I'm Salvadoran, I'm Ecuadoran, I'm Mexican. Tell me a little bit more about those generational dynamics. Sure. And I want to use the word not America, but United States. Because many of us will say, well, I'm from America already, right? So I'll say United States. So it has to do with formation of identity. The things that define who you are, that define how you see life, how you understand your place in society, etc. And the first generation is referred to as persons who have come to the United States at 18 or older. They're adult. And so most of their formation has been in country of origin and A lot of how they see themselves has to do with where they came from. Many times uh, we don't see ourselves as people who are here to stay, but you've come for particular reasons and you're looking to persons who have come here between the ages of five and 17 are 1.5 generation. So there's been a particular formation in country of origin. There's another formation here in the United States. They tend to be bilingual. And they understand what it means to be here and there. And so they can uh, be in both places. They can function in both places. It may be that professionally they speak more, their language of profession is English because they were formed here professionally, right? And schooling and whatnot took place here. And so you'll see that taking place. And then there's the second generation, those who came here, who were either born here or came very young before the age of five. Five is important because that's when you go to school and school is a huge socializing factor in the life of the child besides the family. And of course, for those who go to church, church could be a a big um, socializing factor as well. And so I'm second generation. I was born here. And we tend to look at where we're going instead of where we have come from. We may or may not have had opportunity to return to the places of our parents and grandparents. And so we can't quite visualize what that is, but yet there's a yearning for uh, some of those pieces. And we feel like we don't belong here, but we don't belong there either. And the not belonging here has to do with how we're treated here, right? The discrimination and so forth. And it does have to do with the fact that we're in different contexts that make us feel that way that there's something we're missing out on and there's something that we're not allowed to come into. So it's an interesting place to be in. The third generation, of course, are those who, who come from the second generation. And language acquisition has a lot to do with this as well. Unfortunately, in the United States, we uh, politicize language acquisition. And in a global economy, that's not helpful to us, right? This is the only place where you can be considered highly educated and be monolingual. Most other places you would know at least another language, if not several other languages. But we've politicized that here. And that politicization has been a part of the discrimination that Latinos will experience. And so particularly in the Southwest, where the history was 
more punishing uh, toward persons. They tended to not teach their children Spanish. It didn't lend itself before that. For those of us who came from the Northeast, it was not as marked. And we were able to make choices about learning Spanish. Now, we didn't have bilingual education until the 70s, 80s. And that means that while I can hear Spanish in my home being spoken, I've not formally learned the language. By the time you get to high school or even junior high school, it's kind of late to be learning a language at that point. That doesn't mean that you can't, but it's more difficult. It's when I feel self-conscious and I don't want to be making funny sounds and making mistakes and that kind of thing. So that lends itself to how one feels that one belongs or doesn't belong as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes. We're talking about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. As we're setting the table here, there's one other term that I'd like to get your take and definition on. You talk about it extensively in the first chapter of your book, Atando Cabos, and it's the matter of ideology and the way that ideology connects to what you've already begun to mention, these kind of socializing factors like school and church experience. What caught my attention about that was it seemed to me that when you were referencing ideology, it was a very active force in both the life of the church and in educational environments, that ideology was something that was not only there present, but also could be in some way interrogated, that you could shift your own consciousness or help others to shift their consciousness around the ideologies that they held or that kind of held them. Now, I may have completely misunderstood your use of the term, which is partly why I asked, but I was very interested in the way that ideology plays into these educational moments particularly. Yes. So that's pertaining to not only the the education, but the sources that brought the education. So we're talking about theological education and we're talking about missionaries who came to Latin America. And it's speaking about that history, right? What it means when you've been Catholic for 400 years and now you're being invaded with a different religious understanding. That's an ideology. And you're also being invaded by pedagogies different pedagogies of the time, which were very much a part of how you were going to communicate the gospel in that context. And many of the missionaries who first came were actually at times invited by the governments in Latin America to help them to develop their departments of education. And so they brought the educational ideologies, philosophies of where they were coming from. And then others Because of the nature of the communication of the gospel, they simply communicated that as a part of what they were doing. So, for example, one of the things that some of the missionaries did was they had intellectual conversations and debates at universities with students. And that was a way of talking about different philosophies and so forth. And speaking about religion and and what place religion played in our lives and so on and so forth. And that was the way that they chose to communicate the gospel. What they didn't realize is that there were particular assumptions that they brought with them that weren't always explicitly communicated, but that were very much a part of how they understood the world. It was part of their world vision. And so we're talking about a time of colonization is very much a part of how the United States sees itself, the whole manifest destiny piece and so on and so forth. That was never an explicit piece, but it was very much a part of why those missionaries were there in the first place, why they saw themselves in that, situated in that place. So it's very much a part of the political pieces that were taking place between our countries and the policies between our countries. So that was very much a part of it. And so it was the people in, in the countries themselves who had to say, hey, wait, we're a little bit suspicious of this because you all came in with, with who? Didn't you come in here and you're trying to use our resources and so on and so forth? And so that was something that sort of took them back a, a bit. And they tried to say up front, no, we're not with those policies. Or if those policies were there, they tried 
to use some influence in their letters to people back home. Let's make sure that we are aware of X, Y, and Z so that these policies and so on and so forth. They never addressed it, right? So those are the kinds of ideologies that come in. And Protestantism itself, right, was a way of Americanizing, of taking us away from the influences of Spain and Americanizing us. And it was a way of speaking spiritually about how those uh, Catholic forces brought demons into our lives to a particular sense, right? In, in particular ways. You are poor because you are idol worshippers. You have all these saints and idols and statues, etc. And that's why you're poor and messed up. So if you stop being idol worshippers, you will be blessed, right? And of course, part of the blessing was the capitalism. Capitalism is always an understood assumption in this uh, conversation. So it, it's that kind of piece. And it came to the point where to evangelize and to capitalize was being used as almost anonymous terms. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes, and she was until very recently the Dean of Esperanza College at Eastern University. We're talking today about her recent book, Atondo Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes, and she was until very recently the Dean of Esperanza College of Eastern University. She now leads a major grant project for the Association of Hispanic Theological Education, a leading organization for Latinx theological education. Today we're talking about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. Well, one of the things that has come up in our conversation in the first segment, and that is also a major part of your analysis in your book, Atando Cabos, is the way that Protestantism came to the Americas and the reasons why it was brought to the Americas and how it was utilized within the Americas. And the Catholic Church had a foothold here, both in North and South America, for a couple of centuries before the wave of sort of Protestant missionization began. I'd love to hear a little bit about the dynamics between Catholicism and Protestantism that factor into the Latina, Latinoa church. Sure. That's, that's complex, and I'm not sure that I can totally pull that off as a short answer. But one of the things for us to remember is that religion was always used as a part of the colonization of persons. So Spain used it as well as other countries in Europe and, and the United States. Because religion is such an important part of how we see ourselves and of how we create our world vision. It has to do with transcendent pieces, not just what we see here, but transcendent pieces. It has to do with that which can motivate us and can move us and can bring us to commitments, deep, lifelong commitments, and it guides our loyalties. So when you have a colonizing body, that comes and invades, they want to be able to find their many different ways to bring persons to their side. So force, of course, is one way, but 
there's been so much that you could really do with forms. And so you have to find more persuasive ways in which you can get another person to want on their own to move toward what you want, right? So you're trying to get me to move myself away from that which has created my identity and to move toward a new sense of who I am, to see myself through your eyes instead and to allow you to form and shape me into how you think that I should be. This is why you need these transcendent pieces to be a part of it, right? And so that's what religion does. It, it brings us into that. And then there are practices to religion. And so those practices are daily pieces. They're constant reminders, constant ways of becoming. And that's why it's such a powerful piece. A listener who just heard your answer might come away with a very cynical view of religion because you just said where the kind of naked use of force only has a certain application and it's got limited ability to actually control populations and where that naked use of force ends, that's where something like religion can step in and help to give these transcendent authoritative kind of pronouncements to people so that they are controlling themselves in the interests of the state or in the interests of power. Now, I've just given a very cynical reading to the answer that you gave, and I know that you don't stop with that cynicism, but let's just linger there for a moment. Have I actually heard correctly what you were saying in that first pass of an answer about Protestantism? Yes, because you've heard a definition that has to do with what happens when you put religion into the hands of a colonizer. So it's like a knife. If I put the knife in the hands of a killer, we know what happens. If I put the knife in the hands of a surgeon, we have a very different outcome. I really appreciate that clarification because in your book, Atando Cabos, you go on to say, but Protestantism didn't just serve the oppressor, it also brought some pretty amazing things. And in particular, one of the things that you highlight is Martin Luther's reinvigoration of the idea of the priesthood of all believers. Now, so why is this for you such an important part of this Protestant legacy for Latinoa theology and for Latinoa churches? Okay, so before we get to this, we get to the place where the Bible becomes a piece of literature that gives someone agency. So you had, even in Europe, before you had these uh, movements to, for colonization to take place, as the Bible becomes available to people, so printing press, et cetera, et cetera, now you have this piece where and even before it's ready made for the masses, the 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 intelligentsia was using it as ways of uh, rebelling against the powers that were there. So they became political pieces, really, right? But it was a way for people to have agency, because even then kings and so forth were using the Bible as a way of maintaining their authority over the people. And so others were now using the Bible and interpreting it differently so that instead it served to bring freedom. So who interprets is a big piece of this. So yes, Luther then, through the Reformation, one of the pieces is the priesthood of all believers. And the priesthood of all believers says this, that all of us, when we come to the place of understanding that we are God's creation, and that as such, we all have a purpose, which is what we call a calling, right? We all have a calling in life. My understanding of that in the Latina community is that calling is that place where you come to know who you are as a person, what it is that you're created to do, what are your passions. And as you connect those passions to what's happening in the world and what is your place and purpose in the world, that gives significance to your life. And that is a very powerful piece for obtaining a sense of agency. 
No one can now define you because you have been able, and here's where I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak of the Holy Spirit. You have been able through the Holy Spirit, right, to move away from other forces that are trying to define you, to being able then to say, wait a minute, this is what truly defines me. And, and you're able to listen, to discern, to be attentive to what is happening inside of you. It's a movement of yourself in yourself, which is activated by the voice of God through the Holy Spirit. And now priesthood has to do with not just the things that you do in the church, but the ways in which all of us are a part of the continuous creation and work of God in the world. And so a scientist is co-creating with God and a person who's a teacher is doing the same thing, right? And the person as a parent is doing that as well. And so those different pieces that define who we are and how we move in the world, our agency is coming forth. The more that I understand who I am and, the, and therefore this is why social justice and education are so important because the opportunities that we have to develop that to its full extent, that is coming to the fullness of who you are and being able to be fruitful in life. And that brings fulfillment. And the work of that, the result of them, then brings forth life more abundant in the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes and is the author of many books. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. I want to continue with what you were just saying about the activity of the Holy Spirit inspiring believers into co-creating, because that really speaks to the foundation of what you're trying to describe here in terms of revolutionary education. And the part of the model of education that I got from reading your book, Atando Cabos, is it's an education that isn't simply pushing information to students, but rather it is actively involving students in telling their own stories as a way of creating the educational moment together with the educator. Now, those are my words, not yours. So you may say it in a different way. Am I following the the line between the notion of what you were just saying about the Holy Spirit as an active co-creator and an inspiring co-creator and bringing students into the co-creation of their own education. That's part of it. That's part of it. That's a dimension of it. But it goes beyond that. It goes to the place where we understand the very nature of knowledge as being more than rational knowledge. Right? There are many different kinds of knowledges that inform who we are and what we do and how we come to knowing, right? It's an epistemological piece, how it is that we come to our knowing. And within the Latina community, there are many more knowledges than are recognized. So even the knowledge of, let me take something that would seem obtuse to some people, but the knowledge of dreams, right? The knowledge of dreams is not about, whoa, tell me the future, right? But the knowledge of dreams is a way of deciphering some things that are deeper within us, but also it's a part of us that's understanding the world and what's taking place that is represented to us in symbols. And we have to sort of decipher that a little bit. But still, it's much deeper knowledge. It's something that's happening. It's a mystery that's happening inside of us and that can only be expressed to us through the dream. And it connects us with others so that when I tell you the dream and then you're hearing that dream, you also are looking into those symbols and what they mean. And you may connect with some of your own. And that's a conversation that we can have because we understand together that there's a knowledge of dreams. So that's just one way, right? Because then there's affected knowledge. And again, that's what we might call heart knowledge, but it's really knowledge that goes to the understanding of feelings. 
and not just feeling as intuition, but to understand when we're having a big meeting, let's say a community meeting, and there are polarizing factors taking place, you can see beyond just the rhetoric of the argument. And you could say, what I feel here is that there's some real grieving taking place. Or persons are looking to be valued, and this is what they need value. And if we value this, we might be able to move the argument on. Those kinds of insights come from affective knowledge. It's someone who can feel what's happening in that room, right? So it's, it's another kind of understanding of what's taking place. I depend on those knowledges. I, I have people in the room with me and, and they're giving me signals. If I'm the one who has to facilitate what's taking place, they're giving me signals. And if I want to recognize that all these pieces are taking place in my class or in my, the meeting that I'm holding or as a pastor, then what I want is to hear all those pieces or, or I want to lift up questions that allow us to dig up those pieces. We recognize that this is also in our midst. And it's not only about according to the calculation of the matriculation somewhere out there, right? What I love about that answer is, and you raise this issue also in your book, Atando Cabos, is that there's a certain type of epistemology that we inherit from the Enlightenment that makes those two pieces that you just mentioned, the affective piece and the dream piece, very difficult for people who think that education is simply a certain type of circumscribed knowledge. And what I really like about the educational model that you're suggesting here is it's much more a rich engagement with actual human experience because we don't simply engage with the world in an intellectual way. Instead, we engage with the world with our heart, with our feelings, with our desires and our dreams. And we use these different ways of thinking about the world as ways of connecting with one another. So I, I'm very excited by this model, but I, I want to make sure, first of all, as I'm saying these things back to you, am I getting it? Yeah, but you are, right? Because there's creative knowledge and there's spiritual knowledge and there's holistic knowledge, right? Holistic knowledge sort of connects all of these together. And if we're generating all of these at the same time, then you have disciplines that speak to one another in ways that they don't know. They're not siloed. And we have ways of connecting to what's going on in nature, in people, in, in all the different uh, arenas, we have ways of connecting what's really going on that are much deeper. The, the cadre of questions that you can ask is, is, is more vast. And so it opens you up to so much more, right? Absolutely. And part of how you begin to reimagine these educational moments is by naming something that has historically been a, a point of divergence between the academy and the churches. They're talking about largely the same subjects. They both draw from the Bible, the, the theological academy and church liturgical experience, and yet they're talking past one another. And what I'm hearing in what you're saying is a reimagination of that relationship between the church and the academy. Right. And a reimagination of how we learn. Because if I learn in those silos, so I take a class on X and I take a class on Y and I take a class on Z, and the professors in each class say, well, it's up to you all how you want to integrate this, right? And they're not drawing the connections between these pieces necessarily. And I have to go out there and try and figure that out. But in the meantime, no one has taught me to connect with all these other kinds of knowledges that are in me that are going to help me to make these connections. And so I remember going to the seminary and keeping two sets of notes. I would fold the page and hang, and on one side, I would have all the notes that I needed to get an A on the exam. And on the other side, I had all the notes of everything that was going ding, 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 ding in my head, right? All the connections, all of the, oh my God, yeah, because then there's this, all the questions that I had that were outside of that rational knowledge that was recognized in that classroom for that A, 
And that was my meaning-making piece. Those are all my significations that were taking place. And that is what truly did inform my practice. But those were not the way someone else who had not been formed in a community that thought that way and was used to recognizing those pieces would not have been able to touch base with that inside of themselves because they had been taught to silence that, to not connect with it. There weren't any pathways for them to go and find those places inside themselves and in their community. We did away with them. At one time, there was, um, I don't want to name names, but I belong to different academic organizations and we were having uh, a conference and in a workshop, there was a woman from Africa and there was a man from Holland. And the man from Holland lifted up a, a problem. We were doing some problem solving, lifting up questions and he lifts something up. And the woman from Africa gave him this wonderful answer, but he couldn't, he couldn't fathom what she was saying because she was able to connect to the life of the spirit in a way that he had never, ever learned to do. Why? Because the enlightenment had done away with that. And so in other communities, the enlight- we didn't go through the enlightenment in that way. We didn't eliminate those possibilities, those worlds, those understandings. We didn't eliminate them. We didn't just put them through a, a role of science and say, this does not exist. And so he couldn't find what she was saying to him. He just didn't know what to do with what she said. And so those of us who knew what was happening, we were trying to translate one to the other. And that was a very interesting dynamic. When I sat back and I said, wow, that was a lot of work. What did we just do here? And that's exactly what we had to do. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's the author of many books and is a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible institutes. We're talking today about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She is the author of numerous books, and she is a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes. She was, until very recently, the dean of Esperanza College at Eastern University. We're talking today about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. Well, in your book, Atando Cabos, you give some examples of different types of educational moments. And there was one that struck me and I wanted to ask you about. You were part of an exercise with a group of pastors who some of them had come to America between one and three years ago. Some came between three and seven years ago, and some came between seven and 10 years ago from a variety of Latin American or Latinx Caribbean countries. And they all had differing experiences experiences in this educational moment. And I'd like to hear about what they all discovered and you discovered in the process of this exercise together. Well, let's talk about why we had the exercise. First of all, I think that gives it a little bit of context. This is a group of pastors who would not have had access because of affordability and because of language to um, seminary education in the United States, the way that it's, the way that it's uh, put together right now. And so this is about inclusivity, and this is about creating spaces for continuing education for persons. Whenever you're dealing with a group of persons who have migrated, you're dealing with trauma. People don't understand what it means to leave everything that you know, the way that you know it, the way you've constructed your life, et cetera, and to move into a totally different community, society, where nothing is the way that it seems and where you have to figure out what life means and how to make life happen here for you. So that's a huge piece. 
So now people find a space called church where they can recreate what they brought with them. It's a space where you can feel safe. It's a space where you can recreate uh, extended family. It's a space where we can share information with one another about how we live here, about who has an apartment, about all kinds of things. And people are at different levels of acculturation when they come. And so those who are a little bit of a head can help you out and say, don't worry, this is, it's okay to feel this way right now or that kind of thing, right? So it, it serves in many ways that way. But it also depends on who's the leader, how effective this remaking of community is and how effective it's going to be for helping our children to become in this society. It's going to depend on who is the leader. And the leader, of course, is that, uh, that pastoral leader, right? The person who presides over the gifts of everyone and tries to give direction to how we're going to make meaning here together. So it's important, therefore, that pastors have an opportunity to reflect on what's taking place. But when you're dealing with survival, you don't have spaces for reflection. And so what we were trying to do is to create such a space a place for fellowship, because you see, learning is not just about coming into the presence of a bunch of strangers. Not if you want to do the kind of deep learning with all the kinds of generating all the types of knowledges that we were just speaking about. So you have to have relationships and we have to spend time creating that. And one way to do that is to tell our stories. So in the journey of an immigrant person, we have different stages. Yeah? And psychologists have talked about the different stages and what takes place at each one. So it was important for us to hear people speak of their stories from different stages. But it was also important for us to do some critical thinking. And the critical thinking takes place when you're looking at connections that you have or don't have in life. So now let's go to what it was that you read. So here's a group of pastors, and we had some pastors that were speaking about what they were feeling. They, they have just come here. One to three years they're here. What, what's taking place in your daily life? What are you feeling? What are you finding? What's not making sense, et cetera? And they spoke about that, and we wrote all of those pieces on newsprint and had them all over the place. Then we have another group of persons who spoke about what they're doing in, in the ministry what the program of the church looks like, what do they preach about, what do they teach about, what's this church doing in the community, not doing, etc. And they spoke about that. And they have been here three to seven years in. And then before we speak, we listened to the last group. We said, what connections or not do you see between what you experience in life and how the church is addressing that? And they started to look. And there was this moment where everything hit them. See, if I had come in and I said, oh, but this is happening and that is happening. If I did that analysis, I would have just had resistance. You have to trust that these knowledges are taking place in the person and that they're going to be able to see that on their own. And they did. So now they're seeing the disconnect between what's really happening in our lives and how it is that we're talking in the church and what it is that we're saying. It's just religious talk, and it's not relevant to addressing what's happening in our lives. And now they're feeling like, oh, my God, we've failed. We've messed up. And there's a sense of shame because when you're in community, it's not about guilt. Guilt is a very personal thing. But shame is a very communal thing, right? It's about how you see me and I see you. It's about presenting my face to you. And so now everybody's looking down until one person comes in and goes, don't worry, man, you're not alone. We're all in the same boat. And now they can look at each other. And as they're looking at each other, they're able to say, okay, so now what do we do? And as we're talking about what to do, see, now they're open 
to hearing new things taking place. And when that happens, now the next group comes in. And these are persons who've been there for 10 years or more, and they're trying new things that perhaps theologically they don't have grounding for. They were not the things that we were taught by the ideologies that came from the missionaries. But they are things that we need to do in this new place. If we're going to deal with social justice and we don't want our kids to have to be the leaders of the elders, etc. And so now they're open to hearing this. And now we're doing theology together and making new meaning as a community in a new place. They're using their agency to do that. Someone isn't coming in. This second generation girl that I am isn't coming in and telling them, hang y'all, this is what you need to do. That's not what's taking place. It's not prescriptive, but it's coming from within. And they're getting in touch with their different knowledges. And that's the pedagogy that creates new significations in new spaces in the midst of crisis. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She's the author of numerous books and is a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes. We're talking about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. Well, in what you've just been saying, that really opens up then a a space for us to talk for a little while about Bible institutes and how these factor into particularly Latinoa theological education and how they connect to social justice, because you you were making that point very clearly that this was a justice moment, not just an educational moment, or maybe I should say it was an educational moment that was wedded to a justice moment. I'd love to hear about how Bible institutes factor into that as well. So. Let's talk very quickly about what theological education means in the United States. Theological education is usually graduate education. So you have to have had the privilege of a bachelor education. And that is a privilege. Some people take it for granted here, but I think that more and more as we talk about student loans and so forth, we understand that it's a privilege. And so that's one piece that can make it uh, accessible or not to some. The other thing about theological education is it is that it doesn't fit the definition of what the Latino community understands is a calling. So this kind of theological education begins kind of in the 1920s when we're credentialing and licensing people because there's a professional class of people that's coming up. And if you're going to have licenses and so forth, you have to be able to master a body of knowledge, rational knowledge. And so clergy have to be able to fit into that class. And so now you have this kind of theological education that emerges. In the Latina community, that's not what calling is about. Calling is about you have these gifts and you have this sense of your gifts needing to be given to the world in a particular way in which you are helping persons to connect to God and and as they connect to God, to be able to connect to themselves and to what is their purpose in life, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a a whole different, and and because they can do that, they can remake the world into a better world, right? Just very quickly going through that. And so that's different because that begins from the time that you are born in a community. And everyone in that community is an educator in a sense, right? Educare is to bring forth, to bring out in someone what's in there already. It's not just instruction. And to to be an educated person in our community is to be someone who has values, someone who treats others a particular way, keeping their dignity and so forth. It's not only about someone who has a lot of information in their mind about something. So those are big differences. Bible institutes function out of that place. And they are a place that gives importance not only to head knowledge, but to practical knowledge about what takes place. Now, having said that, it also depends on who is in charge of that Bible Institute and what takes place there. If you have 
of a denomination that is not Latino that prescribes what that curriculum is going to look like, it's more difficult because they're going to say, these are the books that you have to have. This is what you need to know. But who teaches, if they're Latinos, who teaches, and the way the conversation goes is the kind of conversation that these pastors have. Because they list up these other questions and so on and so forth. So you have two things happening, kind of like I had my page divided in half. And so, yeah, these are the things that they told us that we have to test you on. And these are the things that really matter to us. And we're going to talk about them together. And this is what's really going to form and shape us. And so that can take place. But if a Bible Institute really is able to have the agency to do what they do best and to bring their own questions and to have their own scholars write for them, which is why the Association for Hispanic Theological Education is important, because those are one of the things that we address. And, and Latino Hispanic theology has emerged and is now a discipline within theology. And that's important because the questions and the pieces that are lifted up are so important. So why is it that we have systematic theology, for example, and even though the Bible is so much about immigration and exile, so on and so forth, no one ever thought to talk about immigration as a part of theological systematic theology. How interesting, right? What was the experience of those persons who decided that this is how they were going to define this particular discipline. So those are the differences when you're looking at Hispanic Latino theology and when you're asking yourself structurally, how is this institution going to work? So it's accessible to pastors, it's affordable, it's for lay persons as well as pastors because most pastors are bivocational or what I call multi-professional. And so it's contextualized. And the kind of pedagogy that you saw described in the book, of which we've only spoken of one example, is the kind of pieces that can be developed and knowledges that can be engaged. And that is about being inclusive. It's not just that, hey, I put these books on a recommended list for you to read. It's not just that I happen to have one professor who it happens to be from the Latinx community, it's about more than that. It's about how this structure includes all of these different ways for people to contextualize what ministry means and what it's for. So the promise then of a Bible Institute, what it really offers is a way of completely rethinking theological education in the United States to make much more porous the distinctions between graduate education and professional education and lay education. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. When that Bible Institute is in the hands of the people themselves. And so is there openness to this in graduate theological education, or is there some institutional resistance to these kind of models that you're suggesting in your book, Atando Cabos, and that have been put forward by the Hispanic Institute for Theological Education? Both. So the schools that have engaged it have historically engaged it as a satellite piece. The core and the center of their curriculum and how they uh, understand their business model, et cetera, is still dealing with the Bastards of Divinity program. Now, how am I going to put food on the table if all I have is a Master of Divinity? Right? I'm, I'm a bivocational person, so I, I need to be able to put food on the table in some kind of a way. And then if it's going to do that, it's three years and it's very expensive. So I'm indebted. The church that I serve is not going to be able to pay me a salary that's going to help me to pay for all of this student debt. So it won't make sense. And so programs for Hispanic pastors, et cetera, have been things that we've done on the side of that core. Now, and especially as we have to engage uh, second and third generation folk, and especially now as uh, mainline churches, which used to be able to give more for the sustenance of such schools as that's dwindling, now people are having to engage other kinds of models. 
And it's a beginning thing that's taking place. Pathways between Bible institutes and seminaries are beginning to take place. But real conversation, the, the vaca sagrada, the, the holy cows, what do you call that in English? Help me find the word. The sacred cows of a school is always their curriculum. So what, the, what is curriculum? And curriculum is more than just what you read. The curriculum is who teaches. Curriculum is what the business model looks like. Curriculum is, you know, what we don't teach as much as what we do teach and why we don't teach it, right? So curriculum is about a whole lot of other pieces. And those are the sacred cows that we haven't touched yet. How we give tenure. So if you're teaching in a place and I want you to begin to engage a different pedagogy, you've got to be prepared in how to do that, right? You've learned all about what it is to know Bible, but no one ever taught you how to teach, much less how to teach to be inclusive. So let's prepare you to do that and let's give you the time to do that. So let's change how it is that we understand that you gain tenure. Ooh, now we're dealing with sacred cows here, right? So those are the kinds of structures and pieces that we have to begin to engage if we're going to make this happen. How do we become, how do we create collaborations between the different communities and entities that are offering a, a kind of theological education, right? And then for the Latina community, how is it that there are themes that need to be engaged, theological themes that need to be engaged that haven't been because you're still working on old ideologies where missionaries, for example, were not allowed to take political action. So instead of teaching us that that could be a part of ministry, they shifted away from it. So instead of teaching us to march, they taught us to pray. But now people think that it's a, a, a sin to march, you see? But now with all of what's taking place and, and the immigration pieces and so on and so forth, they're saying, oh, heck no, we're going to have to march. But we may, even though we don't have a theology that covers us, but we're going to have to do this. And now they're doing theology as they march. Right. So everything is shifting. It's a wonderful time to be in. And that's why atando cabos, right? There's a lot of loose ends here. There's old things, there's new things emerging on top of those old things. And wow, what an exciting moment. But that's exactly why we have to think critically about these moments and create collaborations and dialogues where we haven't had them before, because it's these gaps and these silos that haven't allowed us to fully engage the, the potential that's there for us. Elizabeth Conde Frazier, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Your book, Atando Cabos, it taught me a bunch of history that I needed to know about the experience in the Americas, both North and South America, of Latino religious persons and religious communities. But it also gave me a lot of hope as an educator for a way that we might rethink our classrooms, our theological education models, and the way that we bring people who traditionally have not been included in theological education into theological education. I'm so grateful for the effort and the thought that you put into this book and creating it, but I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you so very much. You've been very gracious in listening and facilitating this conversation, and it was very stimulating. I hope it has also been for the, for the listeners. I'm sure it has been. We've been speaking today with Elizabeth Conde Frazier. She is the author of numerous books and is a nationally recognized authority on Hispanic Bible Institutes. She was until very recently the Dean of Esperanza College of Eastern University. She now leads a major grant project for the Association of Hispanic Theological Education, a leading organization for Latinx theological education. We've been speaking today about her recent book, Atando Cabos, Latinx Contributions to Theological Education. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. 
Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.